411Live. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. State of world, 411Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl, 411Live. Hello, and welcome to the 411Live Real People, Real Talk. I'm Beverly Taylor. How are you holding up under the safer at home order? Are you keeping six feet away from everybody? Um, How are you doing with the mask? Are you wearing it at the grocery store? Maybe even the gloves? You know, it kind of feels like we're in a movie, but we know it's necessary. As the number of coronavirus cases rise, as the deaths rise, we know it's necessary. The safeguards that we take could be saving our lives, could be saving the lives of our loved ones. You know, it also could be saving the lives of first responders who have to take care of us when we're sick. And if there are less of us who are sick, they're safer. Speaking of first responders, I have a special guest joining me now, Joshua Parrish. Now, he is the Deputy Chief of Emergency Medical Services for the Milwaukee Fire Department. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Can you hear me okay? Thanks for having me. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, I realize that you are so busy, and I know you're in a situation right now. Um, uh, When's the last time you had a day off? (laughs) Um, I don't think I've taken like a full day off for about a month now, so. Uh, we've been full steam ahead with everything that we're doing here from both preparedness and a response standpoint. Wow. Okay. I say that you are the deputy chief of emergency medical services for the fire department. What does that entail? What does that mean? Sure. So um, most time when people think of the fire department, they think of um, our ability to respond to fires, car accidents, and so on and so forth. Um, but actually more than 80% of our total call volume um, actually involves medicine. Um, so when individuals are having asthma, asthma attacks, heart attacks, diabetics, um, you know, penetrating trauma, um, basically any emergency that you can think of um, falls under the cabinet of, uh, of the Milwaukee Fire Department's ability to render uh, emergency medical services uh, to individuals actually out in the community. So that includes um, you know, both our response capacities. So we operate um, between 12 and 14 um, advanced life support ambulances. All of our fire engines and fire trucks all have um, EMTs and some of them have paramedics on them. Um, we have a technology and logistics division. So, I mean, you know, all of our um, defibrillators, all of our technology, all of our drug ordering. Um, we have our own training center. So we actually train our own, uh, we actually train our own EMDs and work very closely with MHTC um, to train our own paramedics as well. Um, we have a quality control, quality insurance, um, you know, section. We have accounts receivable and billing. We have uh, research oh, wow. and we also have um, a home care uh, service as well. We actually uh, send out um, some of our more uh, skilled and trained paramedics to actually address some of the more critical health needs of um, high uh, medical system utilizers in the community. Wow, that's a lot. So you're the perfect person to talk to about uh, coronavirus and its effect on the fire department. Tell me, I want to take you back when, you know, we got word that things were happening in China. Uh, What at what point or how early did you get in your head, hmm, this might be serious right here. This might affect our community. Um, you know, I think it was pretty early. I'm, I'm kind of unique and I also have a background in public health. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, things like this, you know, they always kind of ping my radar and we always kind of think very critically about them. Um, I think the, um, what was especially concerning was when we started seeing the mortality rates for the older individuals. And when that information actually, um, you know, when that information became more and more public as the, the pandemic started to circle the globe, and we saw um, just how dramatically it was affecting older individuals and also um, what the hibernation period was, you know, the, the fact that an individual could actually uh, spread the virus without actually being symptomatic um, is something that, you know, we, we don't typically see um, in, um, you know, we hadn't seen in some of our other, um, in some of the other um, epidemics that were actually in other, other parts of the country or other parts of the world, rather. Um, so just knowing that, you know, that people could actually be, um, you know, be participating in international travel and then come back to the United States, be asymptomatic, um, was have the capacity to, to spread the virus to others. Um, that was probably the, the first big, um, you know, that was probably the first big warning sign. Um, and then, you know, I think Washington really put everybody um, on edge, you know, saying um, how quickly it decimated, um, you know, that area, that, that part of the country. And yeah. then also saying, um, saying what happened in New York and then really having a close in from uh, for both of the coasts. Um, I think we were, you know, you know, we didn't, we didn't see the effect on the United States with, you know, with SARS or Middle Eastern Respiratory um, you know, Syndrome that we saw with this. And I think that, you know, once we saw um, just how thorough this virus was actually behaving, um, that actually kind of peaked everybody's alert level up a, a notch or two. Yeah, I agree. And the what happened in Washington, for me, that was the pivotal point where I thought, uh oh, this this is definitely serious. I have some numbers. As of April 17th, there were 2,055 cases of coronavirus in Milwaukee County and 120 deaths. Now there are probably more. That Those numbers have probably increased. But uh, Chief Deputy, I know with the coronavirus and what all's going on, it, it changes. It's like a new normal. So you guys are doing a lot of coordination with city and county fire departments. How is that working? So we've always had a really close work relationship with the uh, suburban departments that surround the city. Um, actually, our paramedic program is actually a county-based program. Mm-hmm. So while the paramedics actually work for the city of Milwaukee Fire Department, um, the training, um, education, and some of the quality control actually happens at the county level. So we've, um, we've always, you know, crossed borders and worked together in that facet. So this is really just an expansion um, of that pre-existing relationship um, where we're really working to make sure that no individual community is overburdened um, either from um, from calls or, um, you know, from uh, close contact with patients or from exposure to positive patients. Um, so, I mean, really, it was something that we were very preemptive about um, and really seeking to make sure that that relationship was solidified and that it will work in response to this particular emergency. So you already had the foundation. You just kind of expanded what was already existing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I said, you know, we we've, you know, for the past several years, been working together um, for shared responses for larger incidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had to run um, a pilot last year as well that um, that was looking at some alternative responses here in the city. Um, so really, you know, being you know being creative and being nimble um, was really really a benefit to us as we you know look to say okay, you know, how do we prepare um, regionally for you know for what will be this um, this additional onslaught in both patients and um, responsibilities um, and also new hazards that our responders will face as well. So you have your, you know, your normal 911 calls, medical calls, and now you've got the the coronavirus thrown in, whereas people are saying, you know, I was with somebody who now has been diagnosed or 
I think I might have some symptoms. You know, you're getting those kind of calls. So how are you kind of weeding those out to know, okay, we need to respond to this, but maybe not this? That's a great question. So um, I know some EMS systems across the country have really, um, you know, they really tried to separate what they should and shouldn't respond to. Um, here in Milwaukee, we haven't done that. Um, none of our none of our responses um, have changed, uh, you know, dramatically. We're still responding to every single 911 call um, that we receive. Um, yeah, we we have not refused service to you know to anybody because that's really the foundation of the service that we provide here, um, and that's also very necessary. You know, especially here in the city, you know, you have a lot of um, a lot of sections of the city and a lot of parts of our population that are medically underserved. Um, you know, so really, you know, um, any part of you know of rationing 911 service is really a, a disservice. You know. Is an absolute non-starter, um, you know, for us, you know, here in the city. Um, you know, we we have a very robust dispatch center. You know, it's you know, I think people are surprised at how high tech, um, you know, medicine and the fire service has become. So a lot of that is um, is computer aided. You still talk to a real person, um, but the right. questions that that person is asking you, those all get triaged through a computer system. Um, you know, there's a variety of dispatch codes, um, and then there's additional screening questions that we can add. Um, so in adding those screening questions, we um, were able to um, both identify um, positive cases in the community and also identify individuals that have symptomology um, through those questions and then um, tailor that response to that specific individual's um, you know, emergency at that time. Okay. So I'm saying that Milwaukee County, from the April 17th numbers, 2,055 cases. Now, not all these people are going to are calling 911, but there are a lot, another 120 deaths. So the firefighters, the emergency, the first responders are headed out there when they get these 911 calls and these people are sick. Some of them have the virus. How are our firefighters being protected? How, I, I'm, I know that there's protective gear. You know, what about the ambulance? What's, what's going on? Great question. Um, so one of the first things that we moved to was, um, was respiratory protection, um, you know, for, uh-huh. for members. Um, so, you know, keeping in mind that this is, um, while this is a respiratory virus, it's what we call droplet spread. Um, so, you know, so the actual spread of the virus comes from a person having respiratory droplets. They're either going to enter a person's uh, mucous membrane, um, eyes, nose, mouth, um, or they're going to come in contact with a surface and then, you know, touch their eyes, nose, or mouth. So, you know, it really requires... It requires, you know, having a thought about how do you actually contract, um, you know, the virus um, to really levy the appropriate protection for that. So, like I said, our members, um, you know, are covering up their mucous membrane, um, you know, know, regularly. So we're always going to wear safety glasses um, and then we're always going to wear a um, respiratory protection that covers the eyes and the nose. Um, And that's always going to extend to to gloves as well, which is standard, um, you know, for any medical encounter. Um, when we are performing encounters that are going to um, bring up more uh, matter from a person's respiratory tract, so if we're um, treating an asthmatic, if we're doing um, CPR, we're doing bad valve mass ventilations, um, if we're um, doing advanced airways, things that are going to actually bring um, more of those particles out of the lungs or um, give those particles more reach, um, then we add another layer of protection, um, which will include um, a surgical valve. So we also have some um, some specialized vehicles that we're using um, for um, from confirmed cases, um, and then those individuals have um, an additional layer of protection. And not that the you know the protection is is additional; it's more so we have stuff that that we can actually use over and over again that's easier to de- decontaminate when we get done. 
Um, so those mm-hmm. units and those responders are actually um, optimized with that equipment and with those vehicles, um, which actually allows us to uh, conserve PPE and allows us to uh, get those vehicles back in service quicker um, because we can decontaminate those vehicles faster. Speaking of PPE, the protective um, gear, how are you with this? I'm, you know, you, you watch the news and you see that there is a short supply. People are having to reuse, reuse, reuse. Where is the fire department's? What's your status? That's a great question. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where like it's that's a that's a really tough question to answer when you kind of dig into it. Um, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the shortages come from, you know, supply shortages. And really understanding better how those supply chains work. Um, we have a countywide, um, you know, uh, logistics division um, that is making sure that we have, you know, the PPE that we need to respond, you know, on a daily basis. Um, I think a lot of that uncertainty comes, you know, from, you know, from our standpoint is what will be the availability of that, um, of that equipment, you know, next month and the month after that and the month after that. Um, as, we, as manufacturers starting to retool, there's also a global demand for the exact same thing. You know, so everybody right now across the planet wants um, N95 masks. Everybody wants face shields. Everybody wants um, high-grade medical thermometers. Everybody wants gowns. Um, everybody wants respirators. And the challenging part is like, there's only so many companies that make these things. Um, and in no way, shape, or form, you know, were they prepared to make one for everybody on the planet. You know, that, is, that is, wasn't a part of the plan, you know, a year ago. Um, right. You know, so it's really challenging for them to, to you know, to continually adjust to um, to that and then to try to, um, you know, to try to make sure that they have the ability to scale out not only just product, but also quality product. Um, these are also things that are very, you know, they're very tightly regulated. You know, you don't want to you don't want a malfunctioning thermometer. You want a thermometer that, you know, that's accurate to within like a tenth of a degree. Um, so, you know, it's not something that you can just like make more of them and make faster. Um, you know, same thing with restaurant protection. You know, you want something that um, that's built to only let, you know, to not let you know, certain size particles in. Um, and if those things fail the testing at the factory, you really don't want that product. Um, so when you start to understand how like medical supply chain works and how sterile technique works, um, you know, it adds an additional challenge, you know, on to getting those supplies out really to the planet. You know, there's 9 billion people um, on the planet, no corner of the planet will not be affected by this, um, except for the International Space Station. There's like four people who, you know, on the entire world who, have, who don't have to deal with it at all. Um, but yes, I mean, I think that's the challenge here is that, you know, as, um, you know, as this pandemic circles the globe, as it spreads to more and more countries and more and more really densely populated areas across the planet, you know, the demand for those materials um, grows exponentially. You know, um, I think the first death in Milwaukee County was a retired firefighter. So I know, you know, first responders are not immune to this. How many do you know how many within your ranks have contracted coronavirus? You know, so, um, you know, I know we, we have not released those numbers. So, you know, for, you know, for the privacy reasons and so on and so forth. And I always saw our members and you know, individuals that part of the thing you have to keep in mind is that this is still officially a medical diagnosis. So all the medical, you know, confidentiality rules still apply. Um, even though it's a reportable disease and it's like, you know, it's the buzzword right now, um, we do still work very hard to protect the confidentiality of both all of our members and all of our patients. Um, 
And I said, and, and that's gone into even, you know, how we dispatch apparatus and so on and so forth. We still do so um, with that, you know, with that very real thought in mind um, that, you know, that people's personal privacy and their medical privacy um, is so incredibly important to them. Um, right. Now, you know, now I will say that this is something that, you know, no one will remain unaffected by this. You know, um, this is this is something that is, you know, that will circle in the globe. And was interesting that 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 first individual that died. Um, yep, he was a retired firefighter, and I'll be honest, and I didn't I didn't know. Him. Um, mm-hmm. My daughter did because it was actually her one of her good friends from high school's dad. Um, and as oh, I talked wow. to, as I talked to my mom, um, she's like, "Oh yeah," she's like, "You know, we grew up together." It's like, you know, we have pictures of, of us, you know, playing together as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, really, you know, that was kind of our for our family, you know, personally. You know, that was when it hit home as, you know, as my daughter's trying to console, um, you know, as she's trying to console her friend as I'm talking to my mother and she's realizing that, you know, that she can't go to the funeral, um, that, you know, that she can't visit with the family, um, you know, that, you know, even for like, you know, like sending a card and, you know, and making a phone call was as much, you know, it was what she had to offer. Um, and the heart really goes out to everybody's lives that have been disrupted by this for all the, all the major things that will always the things that you can count on doing regardless of anything happening, you know, in any other, you know, crisis you have, you know, any other work thing you have, you know, somebody close to you passes, you're going to go to the wake, you're going to go to the funeral, you know, you're going to have a wedding, you're going to have a quinceanera, um, you know, we're going to have birthday parties, you know, all, all those things are now gone. And I think that, um, you know, even for, for communities or, you know, or personal groups that were late to adopt the safer at home, um, you know, both here locally um, and even nationally, um, you know, when those, you know, when those fatalities started hitting people that, you know, that they knew, it became a very, very real thing very, very quickly. It hit home. It did hit home. We have a, an uncomfortable new normal. With that said, we're going to take a brief break and we'll come back and we will continue our conversation with Chief Deputy Josh Parrish. Stay with us. Social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. We are talking with uh, Chief Deputy Joshua Parrish. Um, he's with the Milwaukee Fire Department. Of, we are, are, of course, talking about the coronavirus and its impact on the fire department and first responders. Um, Josh, I wanted to get into something else that... Um, is, you know, disturbing to me. The numbers in the African-American community with this coronavirus, I was looking at uh, some stats and it said African-Americans make up 26% of Milwaukee County's population, but have accounted for 61% of the coronavirus deaths. And it seems like 
when we as African-Americans get the virus, we are more likely or at a higher risk of dying from it than some of the other races. Is, is, is that what you're seeing? Um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, strictly from a number standpoint, absolutely. Um, I know that we are also watching um, what we call our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's actually when somebody, um, you know, when somebody dies um, in the home or outside of the hospital setting. Um, normally, people call 911 and, you know, and we'll normally respond to those. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, just looking at the numbers and the rates, and, you know, we have a lot of the same information that you have. Um, you know, we are absolutely seeing that, you know, both on the mortality end and also, um, you know, on the actual contraction of new cases. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, emerging, um, uh, I would not even say literature, like systems of belief about where that mm-hmm. comes from. And, and a lot of it is, you know, is well-founded, you know, both, you know, here locally and nationally. Um, you know, the, you know, the present, the prevalence of, um, of some of those comorbidities, hypertension, um, congestive obstructive, congestive obstructive pulmonary disorder, COPD. I very rarely say that all the way out. Um, uh, CHF, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, diabetes, yeah. um people who are um, immunocompromised. So individuals mm-hmm. that either, um, have a, um, you know, an autoimmune disease already, um, or who have, um, something going on that their immune system is compromised, like they're being treated for cancer or something like that. Um, so, you know, those conditions are, you know, are historically higher in communities of color. Um, and they're also, um, not as well managed in communities of color. Um, so, you know, for a disease that attacks and kills people with those conditions more readily, um, you know, a lot of that, you know, is what we're saying. And I, you know, and I really got to, you know, applaud Dr. Fauci for, you know, pointing out that, hey, you know, we've, we've seen, you know, disparate, um, you know, incidents of disease, prevalence of disease, um, immortality in African-American communities, um, you know, for years, it's well established in the medical literature, um, you know, and we now have a, you know, a, a national spotlight on us, you know, one of, you know, not one of, but the most expensive medical system, you know, on the planet. You know, we spend more per capita on medicine, you know, than, you know, than really any, um, you know, any other country. Um, and we still have these huge disparities, um, you know, you know, by, by race um, for individuals, you know, and, and it's showing itself right now. Um, you know, I, I wish there was a great overnight fix to it. And, you know, and there isn't, I mean, you know, we, you know, in the medical community and the first responder community um, in the public health community, you know, we're aware, we're well aware of, you know, of, of some of the things that, that contribute to this. Um, and they are not, you know, easy solutions. You know, there are, you know, there's a shortage of healthcare providers in a lot of these communities. Um, you know, there's um, a shortage of, um, of culturally competent providers in a lot of these communities. Um, and a lot of that really comes to, a lot of times people think about cultural competence um, in healthcare as, you know, as individuals, you know, just kind of being able to relate, um, you know, to their patients, but it really goes a lot deeper than that. Um, even some of the subtle cultural nuances, um, you know, that, you know, that, that had to, have, had to be accounted for in medical communication really come on, you know, um, come on their cultural competence. When you talk about, um, you know, one of the examples I give to, um, you know, to a class students I thought a while ago was when you tell a, when you tell a patient that they should exercise, you know, that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. When you tell a patient they should eat healthier, you know, that means different things to different people. You know, I always, uh, always joke that. You know, um, I, I grew up eating my, my grandparents cooking and I, I loved every minute of it. Looking back on it, it was probably some of the most you know, unhealthy things I could have eaten. But it's not like, <laughs> we didn't, you know, it's not like we didn't eat vegetables, you know, 
Um, like we we always ate greens, but it was you know it's greens with a ton of salt, right. and you know and then hog log in there. Um, so it's like you know just telling somebody to, to eat vegetables. Like, well, I eat vegetables. You know, I ate a, I ate a plate of greens yesterday. You know, right. so you know th that cultural competence comes in um, with really being deliberate and understanding the community that you're speaking to and understanding how to translate um, medical guidance to those communities. And even in this right. particular pandemic, you know, when you talk about you know, cultural competence, if you're going to talk about, um, if you're going to talk about isolation, you have to understand, you know, um, you know, um, what, what the average size household is. You have to understand um, what normal social gathering is, even for somebody inside of the home. We have to understand that a lot of times we have intergenerational homes. So we do have grandparents who are staying with their children, who may be staying with a grandchild, um, who may be providing care for that young child. Um, and they really need to, you know, to understand that, you know, that, you know, those individuals who are out in the public because they're still essential workers or, you know, um, or who are working jobs because they need to still, you know, pay bills and make sure they, they can't work from home, they may be using um, an older adult as a caregiver. And I'll be honest, there's no grandparent in the world who doesn't love up on their grandkids when they see them. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, my, mm -hmm. my grandmother is, um, you know, she, she's pushing on 90 years old. She lives a mile and a quarter away from me. I haven't seen her in uh, in two weeks, and there's no part of my being that doesn't give her a hug and a kiss whenever I see her. Um, so yeah. really, you know, really understanding that um, that that's a part of you know of communities of color, um, you know, is really really essential. And like I said that's where that cultural competence of that healthcare provider mm -hmm. you know comes into play. Um, and like I said even you know even now, especially now, that's hugely important. Um, understanding that. You know, healthcare providers. You know, um, when they're having somebody that has a positive test, they send them home. Um, you know, home for fourteen day. Uh, you know, quarantine. Um, especially for a younger person who's going to be healthier, um, who will most likely resolve. You know, um, having them really realize that you know some of the things that they pose. You know, or a lot of the things that they pose for death is to the older people in their lives. Lives. That's true. You know. Um, who, who they may be in contact with. This is one of those, this is one of those unique situations where, you know, the the life you save is going to be an older person who you may or may not know. Um, and that's what, you know, that's where a lot of the um, a lot of the a lot of the increased risk for death comes from. It's in those older populations who have those comorbidities. Right. You know, you make a lot of great points there and come what comes to my mind is you're talking about the intergenerational uh, dynamic of a household and, you know, a lot of people don't have the luxury where they can do work from home. They have to go out and say they don't have a car. They have to use uh, public transportation. You know, the risk factors increase, increase as they go about their day and then they come home and then they interact with their elderly relatives and, you know, the potential is there. I want to ask you something else about something else, though. When I, on election day, and as I'm looking at the TV, because I did vote absentee, mail-in, um, but I saw those long lines. Some of them were trying to do the, the, the distancing six feet, but a lot of them were not. Um, and I just thought, wow, I wonder... As Chief Deputy Joshua Parrish is looking at some of that, what's going through his mind as he's seeing all of this? 
all of these people together. I mean, yeah. it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? So what is what's what's going through my mind is, and this is the this is the you know, I turn on my my public health brain. Right. So incubation period is two to ten days. <laughs> you know. So it's like, you know, um and 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 what I've you know um I, I gave a quick little like virology primer, you know, to some of our uh, some of our staff here. And I said, okay, this isn't Ebola. You know, this isn't a zombie movie. You know, your your patients who are contagious don't look any different. Um, we have a lot of patients um, in this, you know, in this particular um, pandemic who are contagious and will be what we call asymptomatic. So they won't show any symptoms at all. Um, so when you get that many people together, you know, the odds of having somebody that is asymptomatic increase exponentially. I mean, it's, you know, you put thousands of people together, math just says somebody there is going to be asymptomatic and going to be a carrier. Um, you know, you put that many people together, math says that, you know, um, not great things are going to happen. Um, I, I hope that, you know, and I know that the election commission, you know, who, you know, does a great job, you know, and we're, we're trying to really ensure that um, I mean, government as a whole is trying to really ensure that the things that need to continue to happen happen. Um, and you know, you know, people like you know election workers and you know teachers who are trying to remote teach. I mean, you know, um, hats off to them because the just the the way that they've had to change and adapt to try to think about how to you know how to go forward. This has been amazing. Um, you know, as far as the in person voting thing, I mean, we will have to wait and see. Um, you know, what effect that had, you know, on, you know, um, you know, on our rights here. So is this at this point, are you kind of looking at that that incubation period or that that time frame to see if there might be a, a jump because of this? Yep, I, I think everybody is, is watching it. Um, and, you know, it's it's one where. You know, it, it's a it, it's a double edged sword, you know, um, the. You know, every everybody's hoping that social distancing, you know, in for that particular instance, you know, work. Um, but the caveat is that you know you won't know if it was a problem until weeks later. You know, and that's you know that that that's the unfortunate thing. I mean, you know, um, you know, understanding how you know how the virus works and and how it grows and multiplies. You know, um, no one's gonna you know no one's gonna show up at in person voting. You know, um, touch another person and then be symptomatic before they leave the line. You know, it, it, you know, so you need that that time spent in there, um, you know, for that, you know, for that virus to materialize. I've been kind of thinking, you know, further down the line, um, you know, for a for a young, healthy person, you know, they will um, they will progress through that illness very differently than a older, healthy person who will progress the illness very differently than a person who has any of those additional risk factors, any of those comorbidities we talked about. Um, And those are all different pools of people that, you know, that you have to be considerate of, um, you know, um, you know, in this. And like you said, I mean, um, you know, it was, and it was difficult because there was a ton of confusion around, um, you know, around voting. Um, And especially, and I can speak, you know, for, for, you know, for my grandmother, you know, who was born in the thirties, you know, like she's never not voted, you know, like literally grew up like fighting to vote and her parents, you know, 
ensure that, you know, that she understood how valuable that right was. Um, you know, so, you know, for some people it's like, well, you know, you missed a primary. And it's like, for her, it's like, no, like you don't understand, like, you know, her, like she grew up in, you know, she grew up in apartheid Mississippi. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a very different thing for people from that generation, um, you know, to, you know, I can only imagine the struggle to not be able to do something. Not be able to, like, you know, yeah. yeah literally die for. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So, um we're getting close to the end of this, but I just want to uh talk about a little bit uh, how do you think we're doing as far as you know, doing the safer at home, you know, doing the mass, doing the distancing. Do you think the majority of us really get it and we're really doing what we're supposed to or do you think there is still uh, a large number of people who have not bought in to the the necessity of protecting themselves? That's a great question. Um, you know, from my opinion, I think that a big part of the narrative that's missing is, you know, I, I think that for the, for the most part, people think about themselves, I'm healthy, I'm going to be fine. Um, because, you know, you know, in the United States, we are very like, you know, worry about self. I remember my, my grandma told me, you know, worry about yourself. Um, and this ain't that. This is really, you know, you wearing a mask is protecting somebody else. Um, you know, you're, you're protecting somebody that you don't know who is going to come, you know, down, you know, who's going to come to the grocery store an hour after you and is going to, you know, pick up, you know, the box of Cheerios that you put down. You know, that's really, and that, that's a hard thought, you know, to get through. And even, you know, yeah. a, lot of our, a lot of our safety messaging, it's, it's about, you know, we even say personal protective equipment. You know, when we, when we work out, it's actually to protect, you know, it's, you know, part of it is protect us because, you know, we don't want to get particularly, you know, back on our face, you know, later on our, from our clothes. But a lot of it is to protect you from that next patient encounter. Um, you know, so I think, you know, the a, a big part of the messaging that I think a lot of it falls apart is like you know it's it's being altruistic. It's saying you know you're protecting my grandmother who I haven't seen in six weeks for you know the one time when you know she's gonna go to the front porch and get you know get the Amazon box. I don't know. I mean, but like you know that that you know you know that's really the you know the people that were you know what we're seeing those increased deaths are in those communities, you know. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when you think about it, even for those wings in those hospitals, those are isolation wings. You know, they aren't, you know, places where, um, you know, where you're going to have like the big family huddle around, you know, around grandma during, you know, her last few days. That's not a thing anymore, you know. So, I mean, really, you know, having that thought, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and then thinking that out, you know, my mother-in-law passed, um, you know, she passed last December. And there were, I mean, and it's already like the world's smallest hospital, room, you know, and there's 14 people in this room, you know, there's like kids on top of people's laps, you know, as we're sitting there and standing mm -hmm. on the pies, that's not an option anymore. That's not. Mm -mm. New normal. You know. We are all in this together. Yep. And that's the way it is. Well, we've run out of time. Chief Deputy Joshua Parrish, thank you so much, because, um, just in case I did mention this, 
He is at work. You're working right now. And again, you haven't had a day off in like a month. So we are hoping that this thing, you know, dies down and goes away so you can enjoy life and we can get back to our lives that we used to know. (laughs) But thank you so much for sharing all that you have and, you know, giving us a little bit more of the perspective from the fire department of what you guys are enduring. And I would be remiss if I did not say that I thank you. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank all of the first responders who are out there putting their lives on the line for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you much. You know, thank you for that opportunity. And I, and I, I just kind of want to say, too, one thing that was very deliberate about early on is that um, the media has a huge part in this, um, you know, in this particular pandemic, because that's where people get most of their information from. So the need to distribute accurate information, once again, in a culturally competent way, that people both understand, relate to, appreciate, and absorb um, is huge um, in this situation. So I really thank you for you know for taking the time to um, you know to give people an accurate view of what they should be doing, what this looks like for them, um, and how they can protect their loved ones. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Go back to doing what you're doing because I know you have a lot to do <laughs> and enjoy your day. Thank you. That is, again, Josh Parrish, Chief Deputy of the Emergency Medical Services for the Milwaukee Fire Department. Um, Thank you for all listening in, joining us uh, for another edition of the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. You know, we normally uh, focus on human trafficking, uh, specifically sex trafficking. That has been our mission, to bring awareness to that and increase the discussion about that. But... The coronavirus just kind of rose to the top and we deviated from that for this uh, for a brief period. Uh, Again, thank you for joining us. You can see our previous podcast on any podcast platform that you have. Apple iPod. uh, I'm sorry, Apple podcast. Uh, You can go to a a host of podcasts. different platforms and I'm trying to think of all of them but you know them and of course we're on YouTube as well and if you go there please subscribe because we really appreciate that and you can also go to our website the411live.org that's where you will also see our previous uh, episodes and if you are so inclined to contribute because we are a nonprofit organization you can do that there as well for now this is the 411 live real people real talk I'm Beverly Taylor. Thanks for joining us and please stay safe.